I am Cynthia DeLavi, and you are listening to Curiosity, the OJB Lab podcast. The first of hopefully many podcasts that I will be sharing with you. Podcasts have become a more popular medium for sharing day-to-day information than text, and I have found in my life there's something I really enjoy and look forward to. They appeal to all the auditory learners on the air and allow some room for multitasking. A consistent response I hear within the office in regard to the lab has been interest. However, a level of busy that does not accommodate involvement. Today, I welcome you to a trial run on sharing knowledge an exploration of curiosities in the built environment. I hope you can find time to listen, ponder, and start a conversation about the topics shared in this space. I truly believe progress can come from accelerated communication and information sharing. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. Okay, so for these first few episodes, I will be reviewing and recapping many of the lectures that I have attended in the last few months. Some of these have been due to a conference, and others have just been kind of my mad dash to a lecture after work because I have been fascinated by a speaker or just really curious to hear what they have to say on topics. I just think there's so much growth and excitement to learning from others. In today's chat, I want to talk to you about a coastal forum I attended at ULI Boston fall meeting 2018. I had interest in this forum because I studied coastal development in school. I live in a place that suffers from severe flooding and have had to escape hurricanes many times. I love going to the beach just as much as any of you, and I have a bit of a dream to work on a project along the coast, particularly a boutique hotel. Um, just to give you a brief recap of what the Coastal Forum invite said, it was the following. Interested in meeting other members active in coastal development and real estate? The Coastal Forum is a member-initiated project to bring together leaders in real estate, land use, and climate resilience to share best practices for coastal development. The Forum offers a dialogue-based setting to analyze trends, share tools and resources, and tour examples of innovative waterfront projects in Boston. As part of this, there were five portions and i'm only going to review with you a few things i want to tell you about the people who spoke so if they are of interest to you you can let me know maybe we can make a connection and then kind of the key points the things that i took away that have stuck with me and some of the hot topics that i thought might be valuable for us as designers the first panel discussion was called coastal development best practices Boston Real Estate. Uh, There were three speakers, one of which was Jamie Fay. 
Mr. Fay is the founder and president of Fort Point Associates, Inc., a multidisciplinary planning and environmental consultancy firm. Mr. Fay has been the principal in charge and lead consultant for the past 31 years for a variety of master planning, real estate development, and public infrastructure projects. Notable public sector projects include the $2 billion Wynn Boston Harbor Resort, $850 million Boston Convention and Exhibition Center, and the $14 billion Central Artery Tunnel Project. Mr. Fay is a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners and a Certified Environmental Planner, the foreman chairman, and the member for 26 years of the Ipswich Finance Committee, Vice President and Trustee of the Boston Harbor Association in Boston for 25 years, Trustee of Boston Harbor Now, and a member of the Public Affairs Committee of the National Association of Office and Industrial Properties. The next person that spoke was Nick Iselin. Nick Iselin is responsible for growing the development business in the Boston market, as well as pursuing and identifying urban regeneration projects throughout New England. Prior to joining Lendlease, Mr. Iselin's 15-plus years of senior manager managerial experience in the development business includes consulting assignments for the University of Massachusetts Building Authority and Massachusetts Convention Center Authority. He has also held executive roles for a variety of large companies, leading the company's operations and overseeing the design, entitlement, and management of its Boston area projects. He is a licensed architect received a Master in Architecture degree from Harvard Graduate School of Design and a Bachelor of Art degree and Environmental Studies from Harvard University. The next person is Thomas O'Brien. Mr. O'Brien previously served as a managing partner for JPI and National owner of multifamily communities and is managing director in Boston and New York for Tishman Spire, one of the world's leading real estate firms. O'Brien also led the Boston Redevelopment Authority as its director and chief of staff, overseeing the development of over 12 million square feet of projects in Boston from 1994 to 2000. He has served as chairman of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board and currently serves on the board of trustees for for the Taubman Center for State and Local Government at Harvard University and as vice chair of the board of overseers of the Anti-Defamation League of New England. O'Brien is a graduate of Brown University and Suffolk University Law School and is a member of the Massachusetts Bar. This was a very impressive group of panelists who spoke primarily about the Boston Seaport redevelopment. Now, before I go into everything they had to say, I just want to tell you a little bit about my own experience. I used to live in Boston. And when I used to go over to this area of town, I remember there was the ICA, one Marina Park Drive, and the courthouse. And nothing else was really there. The Silver T-Line 
was a little bit dodgy in this area. And I was absolutely amazed by the rapid pace of development at the Boston Seaport. Now there's a massive mixed-use development. And while sometimes I run away from mixed-use developments because they tend to be somewhat generic, the planning, development, location, and a lot of the amenities that this mixed-use development have were pretty awesome. I could see how they designed it to accommodate young professionals and act as an amenity to the convention center district. There were a lot of residential towers that were quite sterile. Think about Toronto or Vancouver, very glassy condos that lack a little character along the coastal edge. The scale and aesthetic along Summer Street aligns more with the character of Boston. And with all of the red brick, and it had the vibe of the North End or uh, some, of, some of Back Bay. In terms of building a mixed-use development, it had all the amenities that I personally love. There was an Equinox gym, a brilliant contemporary art museum, pastries at Boston's most popular flower bakery or Tate, very quaint restaurants. There were so many restaurants, a coastal park that has activities by the water, and a central park with fitness and other engaging programs going on. There was a Zumba class one night whenever I walked by. There seemed to be a lot of young professionals roaming around the space, and during the nice fall day, there was no shortage of people sitting outside. Uh, when I was there, the weather was perfect, the sun was out, it was fall time, and I went and grabbed a seat underneath the ICA during our lunch break, and it was filled with people. I love the diversity of people as well. There were construction workers, moms with children, young professionals, older professionals, uh, you could tell people that just lived in the neighborhood. That terrace underneath the ICA was packed. It's very cool to see a museum have such a public amenity. The walk to the convention center from this space was about 10 to 15 minutes, which is a great attraction for the people that are attending these conferences. Now, if I'm to dive into what the presentation was about, um, it was really just about the development process of this space. The thing that I thought was most interesting was the developer perspective on the risk associated with building within a floodplain. The speakers mentioned several limitations related to building in the space, one of which was the predicted sea level rise over the next 30 years. Many of the properties would have one to three feet of inundation. So think about that, that's one to three feet as the new norm. So not only do you then have to design for that new norm, you have to design thinking forward, thinking forward. And I think that for us as designers, we may see this as a source of inspiration. However, the developers really saw it as a large risk. And of course, finance, high risk site, how do you build for it? Uh, they talked about a lot of their initial ideas. Do we raise the building? Do we raise the roads around it? I think immediately of the Japanese solution of dredging and filling under Yokohama Airport as a solution to sinking. 
uh, one of the developments boasted its integration of a wetland at the shoreline. I thought that was something interesting that one of the developers kept talking about. It really was the heart of his story about his Boston Seaport development project. He had designed and, well, his team had designed a residential tower. The residential tower sits just at the edge of the seaport. In this area, during high tide and low tide, um, the water fluxes, right? It goes in and out. You guys have seen the ocean, very simple depth. However, what they did was they built a wetland that went out about 50 feet from the property line. And this wetland would then have water or less water depending on the time of day. And they were selling this wetland development and the visual change and being able to see this flux in the environment as an amenity for all the tenants. So it was all glass facing the water and you could just watch over this developed wetland. Um, at the time that I saw it, it didn't look like much. It seemed like a very, very young wetland. But I think over time, it might become pretty cool. Um, it's a nice attempt, if anything, for a developer to be proud and excited about something like that, something so environmental. It's um, it's a drop in, in a much larger bucket, but it is it was very inspiring to see that of interest to the people in the room. I did notice one thing, which was that a lot of these developers worked with a Stoss Landscape Architecture. He seems to be bogarting a lot of the Boston Mixed Use Development projects. Um, this is ironic because I was once a student of Chris Reed. And did you all know that he was once voted best dressed man in Boston? Which I still do not understand. He just wore all black. There is a linear park that wraps the edge of this water line. And along this park, there are all these different amenities. There was a big fire pit that had terrace seating around it. There's a platform you can hike up to and look out over the water. There was a dog park. There is tons of seating, a great promenade, cool lighting. And it seemed to integrate with all these new developments. Um, after one of the sessions, one of the project managers at Levy Park and I ended up walking around this area and we were both very impressed by by what what was there now and it's amazing in five years time how an area can completely transform and change. It seemed that there were tons of young urban professionals living here. Um, the, the ground was just filled with activity and people um, and I, I felt quite inspired. I would like to recommend everybody to check out that project. Okay, so the next panel was about risk and insurance, which I know you wouldn't think is that interesting, but I, I really liked this one. Okay, so first I'll give you the panel that was there. Uh, Leah Fletcher um, was one of them. She's been practicing land use, environmental, and real estate law since 1997 and regularly represents clients acquiring, developing, and selling real estate in Florida and the U.S. Virgin Islands. She has been involved in the purchase, sale, and redevelopment of multifamily residential projects, office, commercial mixed-use properties, and has worked with clients to obtain land use entitlements and environmental permits to develop and expand commercial development. 
She frequently works with clients acquiring environmentally contaminated properties and assists them with obtaining brownfield designations and completing remediation and development of those properties. Leah works with developers, lenders, and government agencies, structuring public-private partnerships and obtaining entitlements and environmental permits to facilitate redevelopment of contaminated properties, blighted neighborhoods, and distressed projects. Greg Lowe is Global Head of Resilience and Sustainability at Aon, the leading provider of risk, retirement, and health solutions. Greg is focused on driving innovation through Aon's leading proprietary analytics platform to meet the needs of clients looking to address systematic sustainability and resilience challenges. Strategically responding to the capital efficiency gap and climate finance needs, Greg leads dialogues with clients, investors, and regulators regulators on climate risk disclosure, urban resilience, financial institution exposure to physical risk, and lowering the cost of capital for the energy transition. He partners with startups. He's collaborated with organizations like the United Nation and the Urban Land Institute. Finally, we have Jim Morales. Jimmy goes by Jimmy. Morales was appointed city manager for the city of Miami Beach in 2013. He has nearly 20 years of experience in government serving as local attorney, administrator, and public servant. His significant roles in government administration and elected office have earned him a reputation as an advocate for citizens and ethics. Now the accomplished attorney is committed to bringing his passion of executive leadership and serving others to his hometown as a city manager of Miami Beach. So I must say, initially, the first thing I saw on this panel was that Jimmy, Mr. Miami, was outrageously tanner than everybody else. Um, And he seemed to be the most chill of them all. I will let you take a look at his projects, and I've included in show notes a link to a lot of the stuff that they're doing. The big project that he spoke of was a streetscape renovation. There is a street in Miami that was affected by sea level rise, and they raised the elevation of the street and raised the elevation within the buildings without ever having to move tenants out. And that was really his big story about how they are trying to respond to climate change without disrupting a lot of the businesses in Miami that need to be open in order to stay alive. Greg Lowe seemed to be incredibly knowledgeable, and he was one of those people that spoke at a very rapid pace. He... Uh, spoke in numbers, and as a financial guy, I wouldn't expect much less. Um, I'll give you the, the simple version. So first, you have to understand how insurance companies work. Insurance companies collect a pool of money from people, businesses, government agencies, etc. Okay, so the issue occurs 
when the pool of money comes from one region. If that region is affected by a natural disaster, then the entire pool of money is used up and there isn't enough to fund projects properly. If the pool of money is diversified, then there is room for error. This is a method for investing as well that I'm sure you are all familiar with. Greg went into detail about their methods and analysis of properties for insurance purposes. Now, in some ways, I don't think understanding the details of how Greg Lowe insures properties for developers. I don't necessarily think that is of direct relation to us, but I do think this applies to us if we think of ourselves as a form of insurance, okay? Because we have the ability to design for resiliency and thus lower the risk of developing on that site. In many ways, I see a good design as the ultimate insurance policy. If we know a building site is going to be covered in three feet of water in the next 15 years, what do we do? Instantly, we think, okay, we can raise the finished floor elevation above the rise plus some. We can allow one floor to be floodable during times of inundation. We know we need to allow access to the site, safety, longevity, health and wellness. We want clean access points, visuals, etc. However, we know that just by understanding the systems and the desire of this cl- of the clients, this type of design is actually really fun. We can make a great project that responds to a potential a potential natural disaster. Um, Of course, there are many coastal development resilient strategies. Not too far from me is Galveston. This is a populated barrier island that has a giant seawall and houses raised on stilts. Right there, there are two strategies, seawall and raised finished floor elevation. Other options could have been, you know, don't live there. It is a barrier island. It is intended to be flooded. You cannot live on the coast. Um, However, coastal real estate is so optimal and everyone wants to have their own personal beach resort that lifting your house onto giant stilts and allowing for 20 feet of inundation seems to be the desired strategy for many people on that island. Now, in major cities, there are many other systems. Storm pumps and upgraded sewer systems are usually a good option. We can recharge aquifers to slow down the sinking effect. If you think of our earth strata, an aquifer has a certain volume that keeps the finished floor the topography of the site above at a a certain level. And if we're always pumping water out of that aquifer and not recharging it, then the land could sink. This is very similar to that Yokohama terminal um, idea I was telling you earlier. And um, I think that recharging aquifers is a pretty progressive system. There are also natural infrastructure options. And this is what we all learned about in school. 
This is the stuff of Kate Orff with oyster texture and all of these grand ideas about using natural systems that already exist in the ocean and designing them, introducing them into the water and then watching them grow. Uh, I, th I think that these are amazing ideas and great strategies in partnership with others. Um, the thing about an oyster texture project is that it takes 50 to 100 years to establish. And I've heard Kate Orff speak a couple times and um, she definitely shares frustrations about this whenever she talks. Um, another strategy is beaches. Beaches inundate naturally uh, if you keep them clear. It's a great resilient strategy. And if you have enough space, some natural erosion is also okay. And then you can also create dunes that can break waves and provide a more naturalized barrier than a giant seawall along the coastal edge. I, w I went on ahead and included several resources for you all to look into sea level rise and to have mapped out data for your po projects in the future so that you could use some of these ideas and try to design for resiliency. Um, I'm really curious to hear if you all think that you have, um, I'm doing quotation marks with my fingers, an insurance policy approach, a way in which you can guarantee to your coastal developer that that their project is gonna it's going to survive for the next fifty years. So next up we have our lunch break speaker who is Joshua Murphy. He is a senior geographer with NOAA and is a subject matter expert with GIS, Geographic Information Systems. Josh brings over 15 years of experience in the areas of data and tool development, spatial analysis, and technical assistance to coastal communities. After leading the development of NOAA's digital coast platform in 2008 to 2011, Josh served a two-year rotational assignment to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, where he led the agency's climate adaptation planning efforts and supported the Hurricane Sandy Rebuilding Task Force. Since returning to NOAA in 2013, Josh has supported federal efforts directed at enhancing the resilience of our nation's coastal populations, landscapes, and infrastructure. As an ed educator, Josh has extensive experience in the areas of curriculum development and instruction. He is one of the founding faculty members with the Urban and Regional Planning Program at Georgetown University, where he teaches classes focused on the integration of geospatial information with urban, urban planning concepts. Now, Josh, unfortunately, was only given a very short period of time to talk about his cool new project with GIS and NOAA, um, but I just wanted to share with you, I thought it was pretty nice. This is a great resource for us if we work on a coastal project. Okay, so my favorite tool that he presented was the Sea Level Rise Viewer.
It's based on elevation data that is available, but shows the zones of concern in detail and through color mapping. So first, if you're not super familiar with GIS, it is a platform that can use data files to create maps. Elevation data, I think our best elevation data comes from LiDAR technology, which is quite fascinating. LiDAR technology is created with a plane that has sensors flying over land. It sends laser light down to the surface of the earth and collects ranges. So think range from plane to earth. And it will create a bunch of sample points, just like what we receive whenever we get a survey. Um, all of these sample points are collected and then a surface can be mapped. It's a fairly precise method for collecting XYZ information, and it produces actually a really, really beautiful map as raw data. This can be translated into a topographic map. Um, if you have ever wondered how Google Maps and Google Earth have a 3D map, this is it. Um, I don't know if you all ever do this, but sometimes... I like to take myself on a little Google map vacation by dropping myself into faraway exotic cities or places that I haven't been but would love to get to see. Um, data mapping is just becoming more and more in depth. Um, however, there are some spaces in the world through Google Earth that we still cannot see. Um, I tried to take a tour once of North Korea after a friend of mine boasted about the amazing seafood along the coast that her family would have on vacation. I know you think I'm messing with you, but seriously, apparently her family would go to the coast of North Korea for holiday. Anyway, I tried to drop myself in there and um, it's not an option. Actually, at that time, when she had initially told me this story, all of North Korea was completely blurred out. But then today... Um, I could see a little bit of a of an image from up above. Um, now I could see all these technicolored rooftops and a few curated images. But if anybody knows what those hot pink buildings are, please let me know. Um, there are also many secretive places on Google Maps that do not allow you to see the place or pixelate the area. I did a little Google search of it because I was curious what places you couldn't see. And apparently in 2005, when this technology first came out, the White House had been blurred out as a form of national security. You can find it now, but there was a time when that wasn't possible. And a lot of that has to do with, in places like North Korea, not being allowed to fly over. Obviously, those regulations have been lifted, but in other areas, it was just um, a fear of being able to see it. And this is where you start to see rooftops in the design world that have maps on it. They start to act as a form of camouflage. Anyway, all that being said, I think that Josh Murphy's platform which was the sea level rise viewer and and his website 
called Digital Coast has so many amazing things, but it would be best for you just to explore. So I have included the link in the show notes and I hope you go check it out. It's a great tool for your next project. And at last we went for a tour of the harbor. We left from Long Wharf near the whale watching cruise location, took the boat, the boat north past Charleston, and then even further northeast near Medford. We saw incredible industrial sites like a steel processing mill that had a very distinguished aroma. It was amazing just to see kind of the old school way of ripping steel into tons of teeny tiny pieces so that it could be melted down and reused. We saw a lot of low income housing in this industrial zone that reminded me of housing I've seen in Eastern Europe. Lots of concrete, minimal windows, floors stacked on top of each other. Um, This was an area of Boston that I have never seen and I think they really were taking us there as a hint towards the new development frontier in Boston. It's all along the coast and a great location for a cool new project. Um, Then we rode the boat back to the seaport district and we got to see the view from the water. From the water, the scale and depth was somewhat underwhelming in comparison to the Boston skyline. Um, but it was a very unique experience. And then finally, we went all the way out to the port where you will see layers and layers of shipping containers that are all different colors and is an impressive visual for Boston, something I had never seen as a regular person living there. Um, But I've seen in other cities, most recently in Seattle there, port is also incredibly visual um, and is a place in which you drive by regularly. In Houston, I've also been to the port, which seemed to have much higher security standards than Boston did. Um, In Houston, if you try to drive out to the port, you have police officers stop you to, to do checks to make sure that you're not there for the wrong reason. Anyway, and then that pretty much wraps it up. That was kind of our full day of discussion with the Coastal Forum. I think it was an interesting platform. Um, Maybe not as much free-flowing conversation as I would have liked, but overall, we got to hear and learn all about something that I think is really important for the future of this world, which is how do we develop along the coast? How can projects be financed along the coast? And what are really good resiliency strategies that us as designers can think of in order to be, you know, our best, our best self. Anyway, please let me know if you have any thoughts or ideas about coastal resiliency, about designing along the water's edge. Okay, folks, well, I hope you have enjoyed what you've heard thus far. If it was a snooze, please let me know. But this is my interpretation of what I experienced at the Urban Coastal Forum. I'm giving it to you in under 40 minutes. Um, However, this was a full nine-hour day 
symposium of information. If you have any questions, let me know. Um, on the next version, I would love to answer questions that you may have for OJB Lab and share it with our teammates. I wish you the best of day and talk to you next time.